0: You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> this is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors. And they're talked about by a black author, and you can listen if you are black or not black, that is okay. This week on the podcast, I'm talking about The Cook-Up, a crack rock memoir by D. Watkins. Longtime listeners of the show will uh, remember from last week, very long time ago, that I said I wouldn't be reading a memoir again, and I lied. And uh, I definitely read this one because I was inspired by last week's memoir, which was about which was called admissions and uh was about um a a black woman or black girl at the time going to an elite high school and I thought well this will be a contrast this is D Watkins who grew up in East Baltimore and had uh who sold crack and had a completely opposite childhood from uh last week's author but both authors had a completely different childhood from me I'm somewhere in the middle so I thought it would be interesting. But anyway, I swear to God, I won't be reading another memoir after this. And uh, in order to talk about this one, I'm going to do it the same way I did last week. I'll try to give a little bit more, you know, actual thoughts on the book. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to answer the questions at the back of the book. I don't know if this is a memoir thing. Every memoir has to have questions at the back of the book. But this one does, just like last week's. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to answer those questions. And I'm going to try to talk about the book more. Then like relate back to my own life, but we'll see if I fail at that. We'll see how it goes. Oh, and before we start, I mean, the question I usually answer is how did I come to this book? Uh, I have no idea. I mean, I'm really interested in Baltimore. I visited uh, Baltimore in like 2015, all the way from China. Flew, went home. No, didn't go home. Went straight to Baltimore. Flew into New York and then went straight to Baltimore, didn't even go to California so at all. So uh, I've always been interested in Baltimore, and I probably heard about D Watkins around that time from just looking up Baltimore writers. And then uh, I bought this book. I wanted to always get the physical copy of the book, and, or one of his books, and uh, I didn't at my time in the States. And then finally this year, I was like, let me just go ahead and pay for the Kindle version, and so I saw it in the Kindle. So that's how we came to the book. I always start with that. Alright, let's get to these questions. Last week we ran long. Gonna try to not run, to run too long about this, you know, because instead of listening to a 45-minute podcast about a book, you should listen to like a 15, 20-minute podcast and then go read the book. Number one, if you were in D's position and you opened that safe, what do you think would have, uh, what do you think you would have done? So, we're talking about his older brother Safe Bip I think is his half brother. Not important. Opened it up, bunch of money and some drugs. And there's two ways to answer this question. With the way I grew up, I think what I would have done is bought some stuff and then banked the rest. And then the drugs. Let's see. He was 18 at the time, so I'm trying to figure out if I knew anybody at the time who sold drugs. I didn't, but yeah, I don't know what I would have done with the drugs. I wouldn't have. I. Definitely wouldn't have told my parents about it. Definitely wouldn't have turned them in. I'd be more likely to just throw them out or something. But no, you know what? I would have tried to I would have tried to find somebody to just take them from me at like the cheapest possible, you know, rate that would have been reasonable. There wasn't internet then, so I wouldn't have been able to Google how much should you get for a brick? Because uh, that's what I would have had to do because I would have had no idea. But I definitely wouldn't have turned them in because... Um, I don't even want to explain that, you know, but just having that cash would have taken that cash. Now, the other way to answer this question is what would I have done if I'm like actually in East Baltimore? So that I was just imagining, like, what if I would have done if I in the suburbs open up my brother's safe and it has cash and and drugs in it? Uh, If I was in East Baltimore and it happened, so now I actually can get rid of the drugs. I would have just got rid of the drugs immediately and taken the money and uh, bought some stuff and then banked the rest of it and kept going to school. So I would have never been able. I wouldn't have had the fortitude to be like, okay, um, you know, however you feel about people selling drugs. Still, you got to have some fortitude to, to stick your neck out for that. So that wouldn't have been me. I would have contacted the first person I knew. It was like, hey, can can you take these drugs off me? Yeah, what's the, what's the going rate that you'll give me? I don't even care how much you're about to rip me off. Just take them so I don't have to worry about it. I would have had a couple thousand dollars. And, uh, or excuse me, $10,000 at the time. And yeah, that would have been, I would have just gone to college and been a square. I would have been good with that. And it's easy to say that, of course, because my mentality was shaped by the suburbs and not by uh, growing up in East Baltimore. So, um, there you go. So yeah, that's kind of a, kind of a difficult question. If I was D, well, if I was D and I was literally grew up in East Baltimore the way he grew up, I'd probably do exactly what he did, but it's kind of a hard question to answer. Okay. Two. This is more about the book, less about me. Who cares about me? At what point does The Cook-Up read more like a novel than a memoir? How is D's story a hero's journey? So uh, I think that the first three quarters of The Cook-Up doesn't read like a hero's journey at all to me. It reads like pulp fiction. And I was talking to my friend about this earlier, and I don't mean that in a bad way whatsoever. But I think what happens is, is that because the atmosphere of the book is so surreal especially for the uninitiated, like if you didn't grow up where he grew up or come from a place like that, it's like, it's surreal. It's almost like so intense, it's hard to imagine. And so that's one part of why it feels like Pulp Fiction, because it's like, does this actually happen? Does people actually live like this? And, you know, of course they do. And we know that if you do any research into places like East St. Louis or you know East Baltimore or... um, trying to think of particularly dangerous places or or, or, uh, poor places, we know that the conditions are like shockingly bad, you know, to the point where reporters have gone in and been like, Oh, is that, this doesn't look like America, Uh, at least not the America that, um, that America advertises. So that's the seriality I'm talking about. So it ventures into Pulp Fiction, but another aspect of why it's more Pulp Fiction is because uh, D doesn't talk as if he's speaking in reflection he talks as if he's still presently in it. So, I mean, he's quite literally using the present tense in the first three quarters of the book as he kind of does throughout the book. So you see his psyche change throughout the book. And yeah, okay. To that extent, it's a hero's journey, but just taking that part out of it, it feels more like you're actually in it. You know, he's not reflecting on the past. He's not like, oh, this is what happened. That's what happened. I mean, here and there, yeah, there's past and stuff like that, but it's more like this thing is happening as it happens. And, and So to me, I looked at this from a literary standpoint. It reminded me more of like a hip hop album. And I really felt that this was like hip hop literature at its best. Like it made me think of a rap album. And I was also talking to my friend about this earlier today. We were talking about Biggie and like Conway the Machine and like the difference between glorifying street life, rapping about street life, depicting street life, and then maybe not even glorifying it, but just like, just, just like, um, presenting it and then of course Biggie has songs where he's you know kind of glorifying it but not not really you know like the thing with Biggie is that it felt like he was documenting what was happening and then there are songs here or there where you know he's just simply saying like this is what I had and this is why it's great well D has that in this book where he's talking about like I had the Jordans, I had the cars, I had the cash, I had this, you know, and I, I do miss it here, I miss it there, I miss it that, eventually comes to a different conclusion, but because you're listening to it in real time, it's like listening to certain tracks on an album where, yeah, okay, this is bad, and he even talks about how rap, rap people don't talk about the bleak stuff, but actually, you know, like, some Hustler songs do, like there, um, there's that Philadelphia Freeway song, even though What We Do Is Wrong, where he says, uh. We still hustle till the sun come up, crack of 40, when the sun go down, it's a cold winter, uh, y'all better bundle up. Da, 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 da. Specifically in the book, he talks about not being cold, or rappers don't talk about being cold. I mean, I know he didn't mean all rappers, but the point is, is that you can have people rapping about the hardship and then just in the very next track, and in this case in the book, in the very next chapter, talking about how he went to the mall, bought all these Jordans, you know, he was living the life or whatever, to me it really felt like a really good rap album, something like big. The reason I brought up Conway is I love Conway the machine, but I think that the level of pulp in his music is like, you know, on 10. So in his recent album, he had some songs that were more, uh, super heartfelt and dealing with like the mental illness side of like, you know, what it's like to come from one of these communities. And, uh, And, yeah, I mean, that's what you're getting in the cook-up. You're getting more of, like, the big than the Conway. So, yeah, that's what I thought about. And and I also thought there was some, like, there was just some pure hip-hop, like, like cadence in this book, too. I mean, what was my my favorite one was the thing that I wrote down, Encore, because it reminded me of the Jay-Z line. Even though it's a really small thing. Uh, He said, um, he's talking about... um, Bip, and he says, he gives you a stack of books to read about Frederick Douglass and Malcolm X because he came of age in an era when black awareness was at an all time high. Rappers and dealers wore Afrocentric clothes, had a strong sense of negritude, and praised the motherland. There's that line in Encore where Jay says, perfect time, some, uh, some at all time high, perfect time to say goodbye. And then Rappers and Dealers is like, just feels like a very much like a sentence I've, at the start of a sentence I've heard um, a thousand times on hip hop albums. So, I don't know that I've ever read a novel, a novel, a memoir, a book that like kind of captured the spirit of hip hop as well as this one did and captured it in like all of its ugliness and beauty, you know, like it actually, he's got all of it in here. So that's what I would say. The hero's journey stuff. Sure. But like the hip hop stuff I thought was great. And uh, as we've covered before on this podcast, many a times, like, I think some of the best literature going is hip hop. So when I say it's hip hop, I mean that in the strictest complimentary form. Like, I think it's amazing to be able to, to translate that energy over. It's not, not something that is easy to do at all. All right, let's get back to the, to the questions then. Uh, how would you characterize D's choice to start cooking crack cocaine? No, I mean, whatever. How start cooking crack was it an act of veneration to try to be just like his big brother or by defying Bip's wish for his brother to attend college was becoming a drug dealer in assertion of D's independence. Bip always hoped for more in his life. Who hopes for more in your life? Alright, so just this one, I'll make it quick. I didn't see it as like a choice at all. I think I would characterize this choice as modes of being. If you've never seen how other people live, make money, or exist, how could you possibly imagine that for yourself? And that coupled with him going to college and feeling like he didn't belong, maybe a little bit of imposter syndrome, maybe a little bit of inferiority complex, or maybe just a little bit of like actual disdain for the people there who suck. And then, you know, going back home and feeling like he belongs and there's something there for him that he can be a success at. I don't know, just kind of, I think it's like makes sense as the only mode of being that you truly understand. So that's what I thought about it. Who hopes for more in my life? the entire family I've had them super supportive family the whole time. So it's not the same situation as apples and oranges. But, um, in particular I would say like, you know, the whole family, literally every single one of them, even my little brother, who's younger than me, but my dad in particular, like I came home with a B in biology one time and, uh, you know, he didn't go to university and he was like, listen, you don't get B's. So you, you're going to do better with your grades and stuff and, and things like that. So yeah, completely different situation. Um, well, I mean, whatever. Bip definitely hold him, held him down in that way and gave him books and stuff. So, you know, he was big on education. My dad was big on education. Uh, number four. D begins the cook-up with a college acceptance and ends it with a college attendance. But he lived a thousand lives in between. A thousand, man. Consider the ways D's value changed during his years away from higher education in terms of maturity, responsibility, and materialism. What if he remained at Loyola University and never started dealing? What did he gain from dropping out of college? Uh, he gained nothing. Nothing. I I don't believe that at all. I think all the lessons the streets taught him are things that he would have learned in college. I don't think he would have been forged through the fire in the same way. But um, I think, you know, all right, so just me personally, when I transferred from junior college, I had a similar experience of like rejecting materialism, recentering my values, and I didn't have to live a thousand lives in between for that to happen. I think it just happens with maturity and the fact of the matter is that most dudes on the street, especially where he grew up, don't live long enough to obtain that maturity. And gaining that maturity on the street is actually way harder. Like, it's shocking that he was able to escape out of the literal prison, mental prison, et cetera, prison to come and be D Watkins. So, I actually don't think he gained, like, something that he couldn't have got at university. Because I think what he gained was always in him. He was special you know, same thing Mac told him at the end of the book, same thing other people told him, he was special, and because he was special and lucky, he got shot, like, he called it a graze in the book, I don't think anybody who's not born in the hood or something would be like, oh yeah, I got grazed by a bullet instead of like, I mean, if I get grazed by a bullet, I'm telling everybody I got shot, put it like that, Um, so yeah, alright, number five, anyway, the point of that whole diatribe though is to say, I don't think that it had to be you know, that he gained it from, like, not going to college. He gained it from being who he is. Uh, and that ended up coming out. It would have come out had he stayed in college, too. I do believe that. Number five, discuss the ways in which the realities of running a drug ring differed from your expectations of it. Were there any stereotypes you may have had that the cook-up forced you to come front? If so, what were they? Nope. Didn't anything. Uh, no. Um, number six, D refers to himself as a serial escapist. Does this strike you as an apt characterization What exactly is Dee escaping from, and does he ever succeed in outrunning it? I don't know if it's exactly an apt comparison, or excuse me, um, description, because it makes it sound like he was escaping from people, but you know, and it makes it sound like it's bad. I believe the term comes up when he's talking about his mother, but actually, all the people besides I don't know, you know, I want to talk about him and his mom. It's not covered extensively in the book. I don't know how that all turned out, but the people who he's escaping from in the book are attached to a mentality that didn't work. And ultimately, he doesn't leave East Baltimore. I mean, he does for a little bit here or there, whatever, but he doesn't, he's never too far away from his friends. So I think recently I read about him in Salon where he he wrote an article about actually finally leaving East Baltimore, like actually finally just leaving, you know, for the sake of his family. So I, I don't think he ever abandoned anybody, but I do think that getting away from a mode of thinking is what he was escaping from. And, and he does, you know, obviously he, he does get away from it. All right, we're making good time now. Number seven. D refers to women like Miss Angie as the most powerful po- uh, people in the black community and that she provides consistent support in a neighborhood of volatile change. In what ways does this definition upset the conventional understanding of power by these standards, who is the most pow- powerful person in your life? So D's talking about Miss Angie being the glue. You know, her power isn't sublimating um, uh, others to her will, but in keeping everyone together by force of will. And... Um, I think that's a common thing with a lot of women, especially black women uh, who go through turbulent situations. And the fact of the matter is the way our country set up, a lot of black women are forced to go through turbulent situations and they can't wield traditional power because the way our society set up, traditional power is wielded by men. So I would say this is true of a lot of women in turbulent situations. I don't know that in my life I could really have a, person who's going through the same kind of turbulent situation Miss Angie did, but you know, my mom and my sisters are, are strong people. And, um, that would be the closest thing, but this is another apples and oranges comparison. They're not having to join a crew to sell crack to pay for their row house because their husband died and they live in the projects. Like, so it's really not the same thing. Number eight, uh, why do you think D included hope in his memoir as a symbol? A warning, a turning point. Who was she to him? In their final interaction at the Seven Eleven, D and Hope failed to recognize each other. Put yourself in D's shoes. Would you have acted differently? So, was she a, a symbol, a warning, a turning point? I think she was all of them. But I think most importantly, what Hope was was a uh, proof that it you have to be lucky, right? So we know D's exceptional, and Hope's uh, originally like presented as being like you know quote-unquote, different TM, you know, different copyright, alternative black guy, alternative black girl dreads, but you're not Jamaican, but no, nah, she's something like that, you know what I mean, so, but oh, 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 but so what she proves is that you could be that way, and you can be exceptional like D, and you could still just get, or like Bip, and you could still just get completely swallowed up by the streets, completely swallowed up by the streets, they spare no one, and you gotta, if you're lucky enough to make it out and survive, like D did, then you got to like hit on your talent, you know, but it takes talent and luck and even a person who thinks that they're like a little bit different or not going to get caught up in that stuff. They really have to fight to not get caught up in it. And so it's so easy to not get caught up in it. So I thought that, um, or excuse me, so easy to get caught up in it. So I thought that, uh, that hope was kind of that. And in a way his friend, uh, Thomas is kind of an example of, um, it's kind of like Hope, you know, good job, good dude, didn't know anything about the drugs or whatever, and then kind of just got into it, uh, cause he saw the trappings of the lifestyle and yeah, it kind of ruined him. So like even a good law abiding dude who never wanted to touch the drugs or do any of that stuff, streets swallowed him up. So I think that's really the point of both of those characters um, whether or not hope is supposed to be more of a foil and stuff, you know, that's, that's debatable. Would I have acted differently? Absolutely not. I mean, giving him some, giving her some money and then cutting out would have been exactly what I did, especially at the age she was. I mean, like now, if I saw a person who I knew 10 years before in my early twenties, who was like cracked out or something, I believe I'd be, I try to be a bit more compassionate and help him. But if I was 22, Giving some cash and rolling out would have been about the, I mean, that was really the best possible outcome for him as like a compassionate thing at that age to be even that compassionate. So in general, I think he's like a super compassionate, empathetic person. So, you know, that's another exceptional thing because um, that kind of thing can be a detriment where he grew up. Number nine, D and his friends worship Jay-Z. They even called their product Rockefeller to pay homage to the rapper's record label. What do you think it's about the musician that made Jay-Z so iconic to this group? Who was the figure in your own life growing up? So for for, for this, I checked out D Z because I believe the greatest rapper of all time is Jay-Z. And I believe he's still the current greatest rapper alive right now. So for me reading this, it's like I also worship Jay-Z. One of the first five albums I had owned was uh, Jay-Z's Volume 3, and it's obvious what makes anybody who's listening to Jay-Z know. It's he started out in some capacity, there's been some debate about it, in some capacity started out in the Marcy Projects selling drugs, and he invested that money and turned it into a record label and made it out, and now he's a billionaire. And so if you could turn yourself into Jay-Z, if you could figure out the game and then turn yourself legitimate, I mean that's the thing. So, and, uh, 444 is another great album for, for listening to that. So, um, yeah, that anybody who's listened to Jay Z, this would, this question is almost like, well, of course, you know? And, uh, and so anyway, D's only five years older than me. So like we're around the same age. So Jay Z would have been it, but for me being a bit, being a bit, being much nerdier and, uh, being also from the burbs, I would say Kanye to keep it in the, the rock lineage would be somebody who, When I, I mean, I remember exactly where I was when I picked up a college dropout. I remember taking it to basketball practice, like in college, and just kind of dressing like Kanye and stuff, and just everybody roasted me because everybody else was not from the suburbs. And yeah, so, but, you know, Kanye had that rant a couple years ago. I think it was Wiz Khalifa that he was ranting at on Twitter where he's like, I'm your OG. I made it okay for you to wear skinny jeans. (laughs) and and shit like that and uh that is that's largely true like i definitely wore clothes like kanye because it was okay you could wear tighter shirts he changed all of that brought like a little bit of nerd stuff into the mainstream he also brought conscious guys in the main you know like talib is on is on a college dropout and stuff you know but you also have uh freeways not on there who am i thinking no commons on there I feel like there's a thug wrapper on one of those. It doesn't matter. Anyway, the point is is that Kanye uh, would have been it. But Jay-Z also, I mean, by the time I was in high school, yeah, so Jay-Z had started wearing the button-downs of the fitted. So that was another thing, too, that you could get away with. I bought a bunch of button-downs from Banana Republic and was wearing that. Oh, there's a part in the cook-up where D goes through and names all of the clothing brands. And I was like, I have literally had every. Single one of these, and there were only two that I didn't have. Yeah, okay. So here's the list of clothes: Nikes, Rockwear, Polo, Sergio, Maurice Malone. Those two, never heard of. Sean John, Mecca, Aniche, Guess, Avisu, Hilfiger, Adidas, Boss, Lacoste, Puma, Nautica, New Balance, Prada, Air Jordans, Trilogin, Timberland, and a bunch of other shit. I bought it all. I would say other things that eventually were in like Slam magazine and stuff. You know, it would be like An One, uh, Echo, LRG, that kind of stuff. I've talked about it before. Uh, And then, oh, one other line about fashion. Earlier in the thing, he says when he went to go meet Sony, he put on a a do-rag to get his hair right. So I've always thought wearing the do-rag outside of like playing a basketball game or really just being at home is silly. And he said, uh, I planned on wearing it until I reached her block because dudes that wear do-rags as part of their outfits were corny. Thank you. (laughs) It's the worst. Uh, even the guys who hoop in it, you know, but at least you can kind of get that. You know, you kind of understand, like, all right, whatever. It's not, we're just a bunch of guys hanging out. That's okay. Last two. D says that as a child, he was given books such as The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn that he and his friends could relate to, that he and his friends could not relate to. It wasn't until he discovered Laura Wexler's Fire in a Cane Break and Sister Soldiers' The Cold Winter Ever in College that Dee finally enjoyed reading. What books do you think should be taught in schools? And is there a such thing as a universally relatable book? I do believe there's a such thing as a universally relatable book. I think a lot of books are universally relatable. I think this question is tricky. In a perfect world, or let's just say in perfect conditions, everybody can be taught the classics and it's okay because it's not about relatability, it's about ability. If you have the ability to read and you've been given a solid education, uh, it's possible for you to enjoy anything that you're reading. And then I would add a third third, um, stipulation to that, which is that the books that you're being asked to read do have something to do with you. So, like, I wouldn't do away with everything that's old, right? But I would try to mix in, you know, like, he he got Frederick Douglass from his brother. It's like, he could have gotten that from the school. At the same time, if you give a kid Frederick Douglass or The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, it doesn't matter which one would have interested them if they don't have the ability to read like they, like they should, you know, if they're not reading at their, at the right age level. So I think ability is the number one thing and recognize, like relatability in terms, I mean, it depends on how young we're going. There's been plenty of studies that have shown for early childhood education. It's important for black kids, especially black boys to see themselves in books that they're reading. So if you're talking about a three, four year old kid reading a picture book and he never sees any pictures of black people doing anything positive, well then yes, you know, that. but that's different. We're talking about the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. So you're reading at that grade level. To me, what you need is books that are relatable, but it's more like the contents relatable. And then you need to make sure that everybody's ability is up to the right reading level. and and for that, that is a you know a socioeconomic thing. where're like we need better funding in schools and better funding in general. For the people in America who were felling, specifically black people and poor people and poor black people, right? So that's that's one thing. But overall, I do think we should be teaching the classics because, I mean, not and I'm not saying everybody has to read The Odyssey or something. But, like, if somebody asked me what should they listen to in hip-hop and they'd never listen to hip-hop, I would direct them to Illmatic, you know? I would direct them to... Ready to Die and Reasonable Doubt and Three Feet High and Rising and all of this, you know? And if somebody asked me for movies, I would do the same thing. I taught a movie course this year and I did the same thing. Uh, So I still believe that's true with literature. But I do think that um, people should also be updating the books that they're teaching kids all the time. So it should be a mix. And then, you know, the final point would be, If you're teaching kids who have not been given a solid foundation educationally for, you know, most likely socioeconomic reasons, well, then you're just going to have to adjust, period, you know, and really come with books that are speaking to them because then it's going to be about relatability uh, and ability and everything else. Nobody who doesn't, who hasn't cultivated the habit of reading at an early age is going to get into reading by reading some esoteric, obtuse, old, unrelatable piece of work. So that's just out the window. So, you know, if you hit a 14 year old who doesn't like reading and is maybe reading below his level with a book that is like, oh, you know, we're going to read um, Siddhartha. Like I read Siddhartha when I was 14. If you hit a 14 because of school, if you or of mice and men, if you had a kid with a mice and men or Siddhartha at 14 and it's below their reading level and it's like okay, a mice and men and Siddhartha, it has nothing to do with your life. Yeah. You know, of course I get it. But assuming reading levels there, and socioeconomically the schools actually being uh, contributed to, I think we can all be reading classic literature as well as mixing it in with, you know, whatever I should say POC. I mean black literature. This is a black literature podcast, so we should be mixing it with black literature. You know, like so we should be getting a healthy dose of black literature. Yeah, you should be reading diverse people, whatever. But it, it still feels like we get a lot of diverse literature in America these days and still feels like we don't get as much black literature as we should I mean that's the point of the literally the point of the podcast so I, yes I'm not taking anything away from the whole POC thing in general but like I want more diversity yeah in general but specifically I want more black books so I know growing up I, besides James Baldwin and I read him I can't remember if I read James Baldwin of my own volition in 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 high school or if it was given to me because there was a point where our teacher just said go find out about somebody and and write about him. So I I found out about James Baldwin, or it may have been my sister because she turned me on to a lot of books in general. But I think that's like the only black writer I read. No, I read Ralph Ellison too, but um, you know he's weird and that doesn't count. I read Richard Wright later. To- Tony Morrison I didn't read until later. Yeah, so. Like that's that's something that should be corrected. I definitely think that there's there needs to be space for both and uh, there hasn't been space for one for a long time. So that's that's the correction there in my mind. Also, I will say I've never read or seen I never heard of the coldest winter ever. So that will be getting read and getting talked about at some point on this podcast. Last thing is uh, Dee's discuss D's assertion that reading is the avenue to freedom. To understanding others and ourselves, when does reading make us feel closer to worlds than our own, and when does it make us more aware of our individuality? Is one result more freeing than another? What freedom has the cook-up provided you? Well, I I think this book would be very freeing for a certain kind of person. It's kind of like last week's book, though. You know, it really doesn't apply to me. I've, compared to the people in this book, I've had a charmed existence. So, for me, it just makes me think, um, I wish I could do more for people. That's what the book's done for me. Made me appreciative. And in a way, so did last week's book too, you know. I just kind of had a nice middling childhood. We didn't have any money, but I didn't grow up in a place that was dangerous. So, cool, you know. That's that's a decent outcome. I feel really good about my life now having read these two memoirs. And I feel like I want to help people uh, at the bottom there, you know. Um, As we all should want to in America. But, okay, so... The freedom thing, though, was interesting because I was thinking there's really two types of freedoms with reading. And there's probably more, but these are the two I thought of. I thought of freedom of thought, the freedom to feel and empathize and know that someone else felt and thought these same things you did and that you're not alone in this world, and that kind of freedom is powerful. And that's the kind of thing I was talking about in the last question where it's like, that's why we can read books from all over in different time periods in different places and every book can be relatable because there is just a human condition thing that is bigger than anybody's one scenario so there's that and and this has a lot to do with empathy and um just feeling connected to humans through books and i think d certainly did that that's that's one type of freedom and you know critical thinking and is is in there too but i think a second type of freedom is to be knowledgeable and powerful and this really is different and I think this is the freedom you hear about a lot with a lot of black people when they're talking about reading. And I think this is the freedom that Frederick Douglass was talking about and the freedom that many people. I mean, it's like I tried to start, a, or a friend of mine here tried to start a black reading club here. And there was a, a guy who was like, I only read books that like help me make money. And um, so, not that it has to be about money, but it has to be about something, learning something that's real, concrete. It can be learning history you know, just learning about your past so that you feel like, you know, you're a real person in the world and that helps your confidence. Like, I feel like that's different from just the freedom to like basically be an empath or the freedom that teaches you how to be an empath. There's this freedom that's like gained by learning knowledge and knowledge being power. And I think both are beneficial and freeing, but I do think they're different. Maybe it's a difference between fiction and nonfiction, you know, but like, it's like, I've always read a ton. I've always read a ton, and people have always said to me, like, "Oh, you're so smart. You read a lot." And I've always thought, like, "Yeah, no, not really. I mean, you know, I think I'm smart, I guess, but not because I read a ton." Uh, let me back up, because let me let me not try to be pretend pretend to be humble. Like, I think I'm smart. Everybody thinks they're smart, but my point being that, like, the reading is. I don't know that reading a bunch of novels all the time makes me, like, quote unquote, smart. Is that what? So is that smart? Like I I like reading. Sometimes I read detective novels that are good. I enjoy them. But like, what's the difference between that and watching an episode of Columbo? You know, so it's not like I'm sitting down every night and reading like um, Tractus Logicus or like I don't know, like a a physics textbook or something. It's like I'm I, this week I read a memoir which you know was very interesting and I really liked the structure of it and the 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 literary influences as I discussed. But I don't know that it necessarily makes you smarter. But making you free, I I definitely jive with that thought. The freedom to be empathetic and the freedom to be potentially powerful. Alright, oh, 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 last thing, last thing. I meant to tie this in. The opening of the episode, of every episode of this podcast, is Brother Muzone saying "Uh, most dangerous thing in America. And so that's that latter freedom, that freedom of power. I don't think Brother Mazzone is talking about reading like Elena Ferrante. I got these Elena Ferrante novels that I've been reading lately, which are great. I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any knowledge in those books that's going to be powerful. So, anyway, all right, we're done. That's enough. I, I've talked too long. That was the cook-up, crack rock memoir by D. Watkins. Uh, he's got other books. I'll be reading them. And then yeah, so the music is by the Keep Running. Links are in the show notes to things that I've written if you want to read something and uh please subscribe on spotify itunes pocket casts that's what i use pocket cast soundcloud links are in the show notes i got nothing to do all summer so i'm gonna try to do one episode a week so uh don't know what i'm gonna read next week um it's up in the air got a bunch of books on the kindle and uh i've been reading elena ferrante's neapolitan quartet but she is not black So we won't be talking about her, but those are good books too. But anyway, all right. Until next time, stay safe, stay black, and keep reading. And time enough at last. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was was all the time I needed. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs>